Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. I'm on a mission to catch up with some of your suggestions, so we're going to double up again tonight. Two cold cases, both with elements that cross the county line between Wayne and Holmes. Two similar counties, filled with small villages and towns, spread throughout pastoral settings, family farms, and a handful of factories. And some unsolved murders that most folks have probably long forgotten. Most, but not all. Our first case tonight was suggested by a listener who grew up in Fredericksburg, Ohio. And he can never forget how his classmate's brother, found a dead and charred corpse in the woods way back in 1973. The victim was Tim Case, and here's his story. In 1973, Tim Case was 19 years old, a slender, dark-haired young man. From the picture I could find, a very handsome, clean-cut face with dark-rimmed glasses. His family thought of him as quiet and friendly, though not the kind of person to easily mingle with strangers. Tim was a 1972 graduate of Triway High School. As a senior, he had worked part-time at the Ohio Agricultural Research and Development Center in Worcester. And after graduation, the job became full-time, and he was appointed an assistant foreman. His boss, Dr. Robert Hill, thought of him as conscientious and reliable. Tim's parents, John and Arlene Case, lived just south of Worcester in Wayne County's Franklin Township. He was one of four kids. His brothers were Gerald and Randall, and they had a sister, Sandra. But Tim was out on his own now. He shared an apartment in Worcester with a friend named Don Horn. That year, the Case family delayed Thanksgiving by a day. While most folks celebrated the holiday on the usual Thursday, They put it off till Friday because Dad John had to work his shift at the Timken Company. Dinner went well, and Tim left his parents' home that evening in high spirits, presumably bound for his Worcester apartment. 
His family never saw him again. When Tim failed to report for work the following Monday, Mom Arlene went to his apartment on Winkler Drive. Nobody answered her knock on the door. On her way home, Arlene spotted her son's 1971 Green Ford Pinto, parked in the lot of a Ramada Inn in Worcester. The only thing she could find in the car was a stub from his last paycheck. The keys were gone. He had only the one set. Arlene called the Worcester Police Department, and detectives didn't find anything in or around the car or hotel that looked like a crime scene of any type. Tim Case was simply missing. That changed a couple of weeks later, on December 9. Two youths from the Wayne County village of Fredericksburg were hunting right across the Wayne County southern border into Holmes County. They were in a wooded area off County Road 245 in Prairie Township, near Holmesville, and a patch of land that had once served as a trash dump. And there they found the charred remains of a body. It had been covered with charcoal and burned almost beyond recognition. The body was taken to Union Hospital in Dover for a preliminary autopsy. Meanwhile, the Case family learned on the news that a body had been discovered. Arlene held her breath and waited. She knew what was coming. She would later tell a reporter, We have lived in agony these last few weeks, and when the phone rang Monday night, I had a feeling it was about Tim, because I had heard earlier on the radio about them finding a body. Dental records quickly determined the remains were indeed Tim. The autopsy also revealed his larynx was fractured, a sign of manual strangulation. Three days after Tim was found, he was buried during a private service in Worcester Sherwood Cemetery. Worcester police and the sheriff departments from both Wayne and Holmes counties worked the case together. They sifted through the debris at the dump site, looking for evidence. They interviewed more than a hundred people, and investigators filled a cabinet drawer with what they collected, what they'd been told, what they suspected. Wayne County Sheriff James Frost said somebody was working the case six days a week from the day the body was found through mid-February, chasing leads that went as far as Arizona. But most of it was just rumor and innuendo. Among the revelations was that Tim had gone out that night to meet a man. And by the following spring, detectives had a suspect in mind. They presented their case to the Wayne County Grand Jury. But the jury declined to indict, and Sheriff Frost and Wayne Prosecutor Keith Shearer seemed to expect that. Frankly, we didn't have enough, Shearer said. Frost said it was going to be awfully hard to solve this one without a confession. We need a break to solve the homicide. The problem is that the time span between when case disappeared to when he was found, allowed the killer or killers time to formulate their stories and plans. Our second cold case tonight is another young man taken too soon. This one, a fledgling criminal who seemed to be on the road to redemption. But before 1996, 
Jason Marty clearly had both feet firmly on the wrong path. His family said the warning sign started while he was a student at Worcester High School. He began skipping classes and running with the wrong crowd. It evolved into drugs and petty crimes, then drug dealing, assaults, and guns. The police in Worcester knew him well. Twice he'd escaped from the back of one of their cruisers after being arrested and handcuffed. But by the time he was 21 years old, Jason had reason to genuinely regret the choice he'd made and seemed determined to straighten himself out. The beginning of the end of his life in crime started in the fall of 1995 when he was arrested yet again for the theft of a gun in Holmes County. But when he got to the station, he learned detectives had something bigger on their minds. They wanted to know what he knew about a recent drive-by shooting that happened in the city of Worcester. At a home on West Liberty Street, someone had sent 20 rounds of bullets into the house and a parked car, allegedly retaliation for a drug deal gone bad. Police had never found the weapon, but their investigation pointed to Jason Marty as being involved. At some point during the interrogation, Jason came clean. He admitted to Worcester police that he had driven the truck used in the shooting. He wasn't the one who pulled the trigger, he said, and he wouldn't tell police who did. It was a question of loyalty, he said, and he seemed prepared to go down alone for it. First, a Holmes County judge wrapped up that firearms theft case by sentencing Jason to nearly three years in jail, and he began his prison sentence. He'd spent nearly three months at the Stark Regional Correction Facility when it was time to face the music in that Worcester drive-by shooting. In March of 1996, Jason was taken to the Wayne County Common Police Courtroom of Mark Weist. But the Jason Marty that stood before the Wayne County bench was not exactly the same man who had stood before the Holmes County bench. Three months in prison had scared him straight. He told the judge how he had seen a prisoner's body removed from the grounds in a body bag after the man's throat had been slit by another prisoner, allegedly for stealing a candy bar. That's kind of a rude awakening to me, Jason told the judge. I mean, I'm scared in prison. I mean, I didn't think that any human shouldn't be scared of prison, but some of them come in there, they act like that's their home. They act like that's where they want to be. Jason talked about how he also had tried staying up most nights because he was afraid of a band of prisoners who did what they called a blanket party. They would put a full can of pop in a sock, then beat someone in the head until they passed out. Jason did not want to go back. He agreed not only to plead guilty to the charges against him, but to identify the gunman in that Worcester drive-by, in the hopes of getting a reduced sentence. Jason told the judge, I just want to get everything out in the open, you know? I want to change so I can come back out and have my life back and stay with my life. There ain't no life in prison. Then he named the gunman as his cousin. He told the judge his cousin frequently carried a gun. Then Jason named a couple of officers he liked and said, 
I wouldn't want to see them get hurt over something that my cousin would do, you know, in a panic situation. And so, Jason received a suspended three-and-a-half-year prison sentence for his Wayne County crimes. All that remained for Jason now was the nearly two years left on his Holmes County firearms sentence. For that, he applied for shock probation, then went back to prison to await the judge's decision. The Holmes County judge agreed to it, and on July 19, 1996, Jason was released from prison with an order to complete a treatment program and his own hopes of beginning a new life. Three months later, Jason Marty was dead. On October 24, a construction worker at the site of an expansion project at Bueller's along Burbank Road in Worcester found Jason's body in the parking lot of the popular family-owned grocery store. He had been killed by a single close-range shot to the chest. The coroner said the trajectory of the bullet suggested Jason was either on his knees or seated on the ground as his killer stood over him. Police said it appeared he had been killed the night before. Near the body was a can of mace that Jason's family said was likely his, and a hammer, maybe a sign that Jason had been expecting trouble. Jason's truck was parked in the lot. A set of tire tracks near the body cut across the lawn to the Northview Alliance Church parking lot. Metal detectors failed to find any bullets or shell casings in the area. Worcester police began their investigation by interviewing anyone who had seen Jason in the hours before his death. Jason's girlfriend, Melissa Burns, said she and Jason had spent the afternoon of Wednesday, October 23rd, together until he received a phone call around 7 p.m. He told her it was from a friend who needed help. His last words to her as he left home on North Walnut Street were, I love you and I'll see you in about an hour. Police, of course, took a hard look at the cousin, the cousin Jason was supposed to testify against in that drive-by shooting, but there were others who might have wanted Jason silenced, plenty of people who were brought in for questioning, but police said they all lawyered up and refused to speak to investigators. And suspicion just isn't enough. Worcester Police Captain Don Edwards said in an interview with the Worcester Daily Record, you've got to have more than that to establish the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. The murder of Jason Marty is featured in a book by Jack Swint called Who Killed? Dot, 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 Cleveland, Ohio. Swint interviewed Marty's father, brother, and girlfriend, all of whom were convinced he had turned his life around. I'm not sure what happened while he was in there the last time, but something sure scared the hell out of him, Jason's dad, Dennis, told the author. His brother, Matt, said before he went to jail the last time, he never really had a lot of time to spend with me or our family. After his release, we often sat for hours just talking and being brothers. But Jason also wanted to convert his former partners in crime, and some wonder if he was pushing too hard on people who did not share his interest in redemption. I don't think those guys were ready to hear that, Dennis Marty told Swint. It also may have scared them into thinking Jay might turn on them, 
and at some point go to the cops. Detective Edwards also believed Jason's turnaround might have created feelings of animosity in some dangerous people. In this case, we have two or three credible suspects, Detective Edwards said, and we are just waiting for that evidence to prove or disprove our theories. Police now hope time will make a difference, that maybe someone with information will grow a conscience, or perceived risks to talking will fade. It's likely the only way the murder of Jason Marty will be solved. Anyone with information about the murder of Jason Marty or Tim Case can call the Worcester Police Department's Detective Bureau at 330-287-5730. Just as a side note to this story, a few years after Jason Marty's murder, in 2002, a man named Joel Yaki raped and killed a 14-year-old Worcester girl who had been walking home from the Wayne County Fair. He dismembered her and hid her body parts, though eventually led police to them. Joel Yaki was the uncle of both Jason Marty and the cousin he had accused of that drive-by shooting. Joel Yaki was sentenced to life for the murder of Kristen Jackson, who had been a freshman at Northwestern High School. He died in prison in 2007. That's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio Mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week. May all of your mysteries have happy endings. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.